Insight Talks. Well, we are here on the HeMind Pulse. As you all know, it's the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology. And I couldn't be happier than hosting Dr. Jerry Redditch uh, on today's podcast to talk about all things, well, not all things, probably most interesting things of acute myeloid leukemia at the 2023 American Society of Hematology. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the HeMind Pulse. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. So I want to at least start by making sure that listeners uh, know a little bit about you uh, yeah. and uh, where you are, what you do, and 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 how did you become um, interested in acute myeloid leukemia? So um, I, I am at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center, and there I run uh, two research labs. I run an, uh, an R&D lab, uh, which is basically uh, all about understanding response and resistance to leukemias, kind of what the genetic drivers are. It's the idea of uh, being able to predict people when they step in the door about who's going to respond to what drugs, and then understanding when people don't respond, why that occurs, uh, and and looking a lot at measurable residual disease. We have kind of a whole engineering group that devises assays for uh, sensitive detection of leukemia cells, both here and we do a lot of work in trying to develop assays that can be used in the developing world uh, cheaply uh, to get them access to drugs monitoring. Um, and then we run a clinical lab, uh, which does, it's, it's unlike most CLIA clinical labs, is all it does is clinical trials. So if you have a patient who's seen to the university, that sample will come to us. All we're going to be seeing is local, national, and international leukemia trials uh, where people want molecular analysis done, um, you know, in a controlled setting as endpoints for clinical trials. So all of the COG, AML trials kind of coming through this lab. Most of the CML trials in the early days of tyrosine kinases came through through our lab. So we, we started off principally as a CML lab because that was the, where most of the molecular diagnostics work was. And it's a fa fairly simple system, relatively speaking. And then once Gleevec, we got involved with the whole TKI stuff. Um, but as that's kind of gone on and we've been able to standardize those tests, we've branched out now and are doing a lot of work in, in AML. Um, and, and the focus of a lot of the work now is on this huge project that we've been working on with the National Cancer Institute, uh, their uh, initiative in precision medicine in AML, so-called MyoMatch. And when I talk about abstracts here, I've kind of focused on targeted agents because, you know, CML has been sort of the poster child of precision medicine, where we have a molecular lesion that's well categorized, the B-serviable lesion, that serves as both the target of the drug and as your target for, for directly measuring disease. And we wish we had that in every disease. Obviously, leukemia is more complicated, so there's more genetic mutations in each one. But that's what we're pushing for. So the, the whole myelomatch thing and the NCI for AML, the idea is that all the intergroups will open this up. So that'll be hundreds of hospitals across country. Any new patient with AML will walk in the door and they'll get cytogenetics, flow cytometry, and next generation sequencing of their tumor within 72 hours. So extremely rapid uh, molecular characterization. And then they will be assigned trials, mostly phase two trials, based on the molecular characteristics of their disease um, and whether we have a targeted agent. 
It's really so, similar to the NCI match trial for solid tumors. Yeah, they say, yeah, the, the main difference is, is that these are going to be all newly diagnosed patients who right. have never seen a drug before. And whereas the solid tumor workers are mostly refractory or, you know, been on therapy for quite a while and the like. Um, and the other difference is, is that for our, uh, since we have molecular measures of disease that we can follow, um, these trials will be principally phase two trials based on measurable residual disease endpoints after induction or consolidation. So these will be very quick trials with the idea that if we find a signal in these phase two trials, and those can kind of move on to phase three uh, uh, trials. Um, so it's kind of a reshaping of how we've traditionally done trials in the intergroups where they've been, usually been, you know, large phase three trials, you know, endpoints as event-free survival, overall survival, et cetera, five to 10 years. We're hoping to really shrink these trials down. And this, and this is, again, shaped after CML, where because of the work we did with BCR-ABLE and, and using it as a really early monitor of, of success, for all of the phase three registration trials for the second generation tyrosine kinases, those were all based on BCR-ABLE levels um, in the peripheral blood at 12 months. So we turned those five or 10-year trials into one-year trials. And that's sort of the model that we're going to be trying to go with myomatch, right? Yeah. So I mean, with CML, you definitely had a great surrogate. Yeah, to, yeah. So uh, I mean, it's you know, and and that's the hope. I mean, I recall, I recall Jerry. I was a fellow at Northwestern when uh, I actually enrolled some patients on what at the time was STI five seven one. Yeah, five, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Marty Tallman had the trial open. He was the local PI at the time. And uh, I, I mean, as just like this, you know, lowly fellow seeing these patients, I was just blown away by how the blood counts were normalizing, the marrow was changing. Uh, yeah, no, it was. It was really fascinating. And then you're right, we would love to have a, a Gleevec for every disease that we have. But, you know, I mean, AML just a couple of years ago, I don't remember whether it's 21 or 2020, there were like some nine drugs that were approved by the FDA for AML. So I'm I'm excited to learn about all of these new therapies that you're going to share with us because, frankly, I mean, I'm happy to, to learn that at least we are either adding things to 7 and 3 or moving away from 7 and 3 because we've had this for like four decades <laughs> and, you know, been around for a while. we've kind uh, yeah, of maxed three. out there. The seven and three was uh, the standard when I started doing this, which is, uh, you know, we were, we were writing orders. Um, we were chiseling orders in clay tablets at, the, at that time. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the two major <laughs> questions at the time, if, I, if my memory serves me right, that I mean, that, that, you know, the leukemia folks were always arguing about, A, which anthracycline should we use, Ida, Dono, yeah. uh, and what the dose that we should use. And then whether you should really do, you know, RSE and it just like there's a lot of these questions. So it's very enlightening to know that the things are really progressing nicely and, and doing NGS and, and this match trial hopefully is going to really help uh, identifying some new therapies and new targets, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's start. Well, <clears throat> let's start with maybe uh, first thing, of course, not necessarily in the order of importance, but uh, what what is the first thing you'd like to share with listeners? So there's there's two trials that I think that are that are very interesting. There's um, and both of them uh, are about these so-called MEN inhibitors. And so um, what happens is the is MEN um, interacts with with a couple of agents that are involved with leukemogenesis. One is 
the MLL protein, which is now redefined as, as KM2A, um, and as well as interacts with MPM1. And so there are drugs now that, that are basically trying to decrease the, uh, the scaffolding interaction between menin and, and those two uh, oncogenes. Um, and when you think about it, it actually turns out that it's a pretty big bite of the pie in that um, MLL or KM2A, whatever you want, nomenclature you want to use, um, disruptions in that gene occur to somewhere between 10 to 15% of leukemia AML patients. And then NPM is found in 30% of patients. So this would be, if you can inhibit this pathway, potentially is, is a pretty big pathway to inhibit. Um, and there are, there are two fairly early trials that are being out there right now. Um, one is it'll be uh, abstract oral apps. It's going to oral, it's number 57. If people want to do it, it's going to be on Saturday uh, on the 9th at the 10 a.m. session. And this is basically a phase one tr trial of an agent called JMJ. I can't memorize this. <laughs> uh, you don't have to. You don't In fact, to. it's a large number afterwards. We'll just right. call it the immune inhibitor J&J. &J. Um, and what it's looking at is, is a phase one trial, because you have to kind of start these always in, in you know, fairly difficult patients. So it's a phase one trial of patients in, in refractory and relapsed uh, AML patients. So a really pretty tough, tough population. Um, and they have 58 patients were studied all together so far. 56 of those were AML patients. So resistant refractory AML, really, really tough push. Um, and it was really just kind of classic phase one safety and efficacy study. Um, efficacy, safety-wise, it actually looks pretty good as a single agent. Um, only about 50% of patients had uh, significant AEs. Most of those were hematological effects, which is usually kind of a good thing because it means it's hitting on target. Um, some problems with LFTs, but it was mostly hematological toxicities. Um, and again, it's very early on. You can use you know, in these phase one trials, you're just hoping to see a signal. They haven't gotten to a DLT yet. Um, but it looked like about 63% of patients after a few cycles had actually decreased their bone marrow blast population, uh, which is actually a pretty darn good start. Um, there were 12 clear responders of the 41 respondents who were valuable. So again, you'd say, well, 25%, you know, what's that? But in a single agent in this kind of population group, that's not bad, uh, especially in, without toxicity. Um, and so it's it looks like, and if biologically in the correlate studies that they can do with, they looked at both uh, transcript level and they looked at actual VAF levels that, that decline over time. It, in the responders, it looks like it's actually doing something on target. Yeah. So I think that that it's early on for a phase one trial, it looks kind of promising. It's it's continuing right now in the dose finding. Um, maybe now, since you know these abstracts get thrown in in August, Maybe now they they have an sure. idea of what the DLT sure. is going to be, um, but I think this will be certainly something so far, at least by what's out there right now, will certainly be something that will be going into the next phase of trials. Jerry, is the is the um, menin that goes against the MLL all? I mean, at, le at least if I uh, what I recall, the MLL uh, occurs when you have the eleven Q two three translocation. Um, but that's different than the NPM1, right? I mean, so, so right, right. So, but they, yeah, but NPM1, but they share the menin pathway as far as the scalp. Okay, so that's to clarify right. to listeners, yeah, yeah. because the the 11Q23 leads to the MLL uh, gene, 
And I think what, what you're saying is there seems to be this common pathway where the same drug could work against the yep, NPM1 right. and MLL. Okay. That's right. So you see, yeah, you see you could get both pathways, right? Um, so the second uh, one is with a, a menin inhibitor that's, that's more down the line. It's now going into phase one, two trials. And this will be, pro, this will be um, number 58. So right the same period back to back. Um, this is see an, a men inhibitor by the name of uh, Revolumib. It used to be. Oh, well, you you know you know it's much more advanced because it's got a name. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. The other it, one, the other one got letters be, and numbers. <laughs> it used to be SNDX, which is actually easier to pronounce and right. spell. Uh, I, I think they should actually force these companies to have spelling bees and see what they. They impart upon us these horrible. You know, names. It, this reminds me. I have to. <laughs> I have to send you. This. I got. I gotta find this. It was like a letter to the editor in NEJM, probably over ten years old, about <laughs> some someone who wrote about how these uh, these names are selected, and they're really. I don't know. I think they they probably do market research. How can we make it very difficult for folks to remember these names? Yep. Yep. So, well, it's going back to the uh, as an aside, um, how where they get these names from. Um, people might wonder where did the name Gleevec come from for CML. Yeah. So it turns so it turns out that the drug company was working on a agent, a different agent for glioblastoma, and in getting a, these drug names, there has to be a whole bit of vetting, you know, legal vetting about whether you know trademarks and everything else. And so they were getting ready. They had this whole name all set up. It was you know free to go for this drug, and the drug didn't pass the trials. And so, so a mat uh, of STI-571 comes along and it's cranking out and it's kind of ahead of his schedule and they've got to have a name. And so they, they picked the name that was already had passed all the tests and they said, okay, you're now Glee back. <laughs> that's a great story. I did not know yeah, that yeah, at that's, all. Uh, that's where the Glee comes from. Um, I, see. I see. So this trial is a phase one, two study and it's looking at uh, again, um, these are going to be all refractory AML mm -hmm. patients mm -hmm. um, who have seen many agents. And it's going for an all oral combination of a MEN inhibitor, um, the cytobine, cerdoxamine, the AZT drug, and venetoclax. So you're actually like hitting three pathways, right? You're hitting the MEN pathway, you're doing a um, hypermethylating agent, the, the cytobine agent. And you're looking at apoptosis BCL2 with venetoclax. So you're, so really you're combining of, them? You're doing the medical yeah, plus IC. Yeah, yeah. They're three, three, and it's all oral regimen, which is pretty, you know, pretty exciting. Um, and so this is kind of standard three by three dose escalation trials. So far, it's only reported here as eight patients. I'm sure it will be more by the time that they present it there. Um, the safety was pretty good. It was kind of the standard toxicity you'd expect to see with these combination of agents a lot of hemopoietic toxicity, toxicity from hyperphosphatemia, some LFT changes, but you know nothing out of the realm that you'd expect that you would expect to see with this kind of these agents in combination. Um, the interesting thing is that it, at least so far, it looks surprisingly effective in this population. So of the eight patients they found on study, they report that seven were valuable at the time of the abstract presentation. Um, all seven of those got into a CR which is kind of like, really? You know, it's small numbers, but nonetheless, it's like, wow, that's pretty darn good. Um, and in of those seven patients, three of these 
had achieved an MRD negative status down to 10 to minus fourth by flow, which is really right. good. I mean, that's that. So again, you might say eight patients, you know, who, who the heck knows what that means. Yeah, but I mean, for but listeners, this class for, of patients. <laughs> yeah, but for listener, for listeners, Jerry, I think you and I can agree that these patients probably have been offered hospice and palliative care. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's so, um, you know, small numbers and stuff. But, but that's got to get your attention, right? And that population, especially getting half of them essentially down to MRD levels, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's that's really a very promising drug. So, so I always keep your eye on that regimen and keep your eye on that poster uh another one and that's how car t started there's just few patients here and there right <laughs> yeah exactly it's now and now now an industry right? right now an industry right um so let's go to another whole new class of agent and that'll be the idh2 uh, inhibitors so um for those of you out there you know idh1 and 2 uh, idh2 occurs a little bit more probably somewhere between 10% to maybe 15% of AMLs have IDH2 inhibitors. Um, and so there's a number of drugs now that are that are trying to go into this pathway. Um, the one that has a name right now is Enosimidib. Um, so Ena is easy of you to call it. And it's gone through some promising phase one trials with single agent and is now it's being tried in, in, in kind of the next step in combination with other things. And so this is a trial where they added it to venetoclax because venetoclax is like in the drinking water now. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, you, when in doubt, you add venetoclax, you all- Like rituxin for lymphoma. That, that, that makes it makes it relevant. And this is a phase 1B2 uh, trial. Again, uh, you know, 50 um, patients, 12 of them were in the phase 1B trial or phase 1 trial. And then when that rolled over into phase 2, they've got 15 in that section of the trial. Um, again, pretty well tolerated. 20% uh, of patients had grade three to five AEs, um, no deaths on it, no discontinuations on it. The most common toxicities is nausea, vomiting. About 40% of patients will have significant uh, those effects. Um, of the valuable patients, again, it looks pretty good. The overall response rates of the patients who are valuable, um, there's 23 that are valuable so far of those uh, potential 27 patients. Of those 23, 70% of them had some overall response uh, and 57% in complete response. Again, wow. a, a very good response for, for, for that population with, with uh, to just two agents. Um, there are two different types of mutations uh, that are common in, in this um, and people don't have to re re be memorize them, but they have, as in some diseases, they, the two different mutations have a certain different response rates so that the most responsive agent um, had, you know, better response rates by about 20% than, than the than the other mutation. So if you look at uh, overall sponsors, I'm just looking at the chart now, uh, those with this ID with this so-called R140 mutation have an overall response rate of 55%. And if you look at the patients who have the R172, that jumps up into 83%. Again, small numbers, but for uh, you know a single targeted agent, uh, you know strapped on the back of a kind of a broad agent like venetoclax, uh, pretty promising. Did they report on the duration of response or not really? No, no. These two, all these are too early to have the response. Right. So these are all I've picked out very kind of right. early early trials. And again, this is wearing my myelomatch hat on because these are 
agents that will be trying to get into these phase two trials if they have any signal at all in these trials. And what what what's the Jerry like how what's the percent of uh, AML patients with IDH1 and IDH2 in general? You know, it'll come out to be about 15% altogether. Okay. It depends on what what series you look at. Um right. IDH2 usually a little bit more than IDH1, but but it's a, a big enough population. Now, you know, the issue the, the issue is and why this gets to be from a programmatic process uh complicated that if you say Let's just take a lower end. Let's say for for non-selected newly diagnosed patients, IDH2 has ten percent, right? So that means though you that you're screening a lot of patients, right, to get onto a trial, right? And that's why you have to have, you know, lots of different arms because you've got to have enough arms to make this manageable. You know, if you're screening patients, and if you look at all the different types of mutations, if you only had can encompass 20 or 30 percent you know it's not going to be feasible cost-wise but, but to, today you do need to check for the idh1 idh2 because there are approved drugs for yep, yep. aml who target that mutation so it, it's right. almost i i mean i don't know I, I i presume by default if you're treating an aml patient you, you kind of gotta have a way to find out whether there's this mutation or not yeah yeah and i think that you know I, it's going to be it's getting more and more uh, common to have next generation sequencing panels done. Right. Um, the problem has been in most places that it just takes a long time. Maybe right. you know, most most places it's going to take a few weeks to get that kind of information back. Right. Um, so you have to kind of, you know, of course, sometimes that's not too bad because I've had a couple of patients I did consults on today who had new diagnosis uh, where they needed one of these target agents. And the insurance is going to take them three weeks anyway. So, you know, so it's, 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 it's really, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to digress, but it, to me, a patient please. with acute, not, not all acute myeloid leukemias obviously are emergencies, right? But I mean, but the right. name acute comes from the fact it's <laughs> so acute, that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea yep. that three weeks, it takes three weeks for the insurance company to allow, and it's, to me, is mind boggling. It's an acute disease that you got to at least treat the minute you think it's safe. It's weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, yeah. Uh, we'll get, you know, it will, again, it, it took, when you look at how long it took for B-serial testing to be yeah. both out there, commonly used, and approved without thought by the insurance companies, it took, it took a few years. So, I mean, well, I think we'll, we'll get, we'll have the traction, yeah. we'll get there. Um, and I, I think that, that as we get more of these agents in, it's going to force their hands because, you know, right now they can say, well, look, why do we, why do we need rapid next generation sequencing? There's not enough drugs out there, right. but as more come down the pike, it's going to be, be routine. And, and as, again, now these, there are platforms where you can actually do these things fairly, fairly rapidly. So I think that it's going to be more and more, more mainstream coming on. I mean, it's going to have to happen, right? Um, you'll probably just for sake of time here, you know, our time, I think that the, the thing that I'll jump into is maybe uh, into the transplant world for a minute. Because yep. um, I am a clinical transplanter. Um, and just to one of the common pr uh, problems we have with transplantation is, you know, we can, we can just, it's usually an AML patient comes in. If they're a low risk patient, meaning an APL patient, by the way, there's um, a pro, a, a abstract I won't um, talk about here, but, you know, the, the Chinese now all oral therapy of APL is like almost 100% survival. It's kind of amazing. There's an abstract out there with hundreds of patients. It's just amazing. Um, so APL, um, you know, 
and then maybe some of the CBP mutations like 821s and version 16s. Um, and in, uh, you, we talk about maybe not having to transplant. High-risk patients, people obviously want to transplant, and we gave them into the intermediate, you know, especially the ones with the NPM ones, foot threes, we just often don't know the best way to, 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 to deal with those. Um, so in a lot of it, we worry about how does MRD take place um, in patients who have MRD after therapy? Do we take those in transplant knowing that they have a little higher risk of relapse uh, versus not take the transplant and just you know hope for the best? Um, so this was a study that looked at a number of patients with a question of what to do with NPM1 specifically, since that's a common one we deal with. And so they took two European trials, very large trials, and 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 obviously I mean, one of the problems you have in these trials is there's really not that much control about who gets transplanted or not. So there's always a selection bias in who gets transplanted or not. So that's and there's just no way to get around it. Um, but of this, they had a big number, like 270 patients who had NPM1 mutations that got into a CR, um, and then it basically decided it said. What happens if you transplant patients versus you don't transplant patients? And if you look at the patients who are NPM1 positive by a nexturation sequencing assay um, and who are MRD positive in their peripheral blood after, after um, a couple of rounds of consolidation, and you say, if you what happens to those patients who are transplanted versus not? Um, the patients who got transplanted with MRD positivity did pretty well, like 60% survival, which is great. Um, the ones that didn't get transplanted who were MRD positive, only 20% of them survived, meaning that that probably MRD positivity is an indication to go to transplant in these patients. You're probably good. Right, right. If you were MRD negative, though, for NPM1, despite what your FOOT3 status was, those patients survived basically 70 to 80% both groups. So if you were MRD negative for MPM1, um, you whether you transplant or not seemed to do very well. So that's, I, mean, I, think, I think other groups will have to show that that's true or not, but I think that kind of shows that you can start using MRD maybe as a marker on who needs to go to transplant or not. Um, now for the people who get need to get transplant, one thing I should, educate the listener now is that there is virtually transplant options for every patient now. When you look at either related or unrelated donors or haplos or cords, pretty much everyone get a transplant. And there has not, and there never will be randomized trials between you know different sources of, of donors for patients. But when people have tried it statistically take, you know, similar diagnoses and then, you know, pick donors and kind of and match them for ages and risks and the like, it looks like all these different types of donors give essentially the same overall survival results at the end of the day. What it ends up doing is that for each of these conditions, related donors, unrelated donors, cords, and haplos, you have a little bit different risks associated with them, right. be it GBHD, infection, relapse, but at the end of the day, those competitive risks kind of balance out and everyone has essentially the same survival. So if you have a patient who you're thinking about needs a transplant, you should be able to find them a donor. You know, like, but, like, but so so where does age fit into this though? Because I, I realize we always say age is not 
is just a number. I don't believe in that, by the way. I also realize that, you know, leukemia still remains a disease of for median age, I believe, is yeah, yeah, yeah. over 70. So is there, is there, despite all of these options, is there an age <laughs> limit where you just say, you know what, I probably can't do this? I, I got to so I know that the bottom line for many institutions, including myself, is that our own, is that age doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's fitness that matters. That is true up to a point. I, I right. cannot put a magic number on the age, but I got to tell you, I mean, the, the, the major stuff. So I'm old enough that, that I was a resident when Marty Tallman was a fellow, right? Yeah. So, that's, so, so when I first went on the transplant for which uh, 1986, I believe, was my first time on a transplant for, I'm obviously was a lot younger, but all the patients I had were younger than I was. It was just a young person's game, right? The age limit was like 30, 35. Now I'm starting going back. I'm doing outpatient attending on the transplant service for the entire month of December. You know, so I'll be there. Um, I still do this stuff. Um, most, I would say, half the patients I see now are my age or older. That's how much things have changed. We say transplantation does is, doesn't have an age limit, but I gotta tell you, um, once you hit seventies. Things are, and I'm almost there, things are kind of held together by tape. Right. So even when things look good, yeah. you push one thing and other dominoes fall. And um, and uh, it's, so it's, I think transplanting patients into the 70s is not for the faint of heart. And and I think that, that and I think that we really have to, to think about that when you take care of patients. Um, when you plan early on, right? It, it's because- it's got to be a mutual decision on what your goals are, right? Are your goals best quality of life for the longest period of possible? And are your goals, I'm going to go for it no matter what, because transplant pushes all of the risks in your face, right? Um, and I think realistically, the discussions you have with 25-year-olds need to be different than 75-year-olds. Of course. Which need to be, and I think that that, you know, it's in, you might wrestle a 25-year-old to the mat to transplant. Um, you might gently arm wrestle someone in their 50s, but in the 70s, you got to, like, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I think that's just the, the reality of it. Um, yeah, that's very helpful. Very helpful perspective. Yeah. Any other abstracts that you came there's, across? There is, there, is, there, is so, there is so many. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one, one, if you want to go... Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a few that I'm involved in that I will pitch just because I'm supposed to pitch these from our, my perspective of... of hey, you're the like, guest. You can pitch yours. It's okay. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not mind-bending, but they just kind of show the breadth of stuff that we do. Um, so, you know, for this whole match thing, we've had to essentially validate a whole next-generation sequencing platform that can do this in three days with like over a hundred targets. That, that's a three days is a I mean, I mean, that, that is, fast. I've never heard this with NGS for three days. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna happen anyway. So Fred, Frederick's lab and ourselves validated it. Uh, we've sent a document to the FDA. The original document was 1800 pages of data. Okay. Uh, however, we will condense that for the abstract. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> 
but it basically shows that that, that this stuff it works and it, it, you can it's highly accurate high sensitivity high specificity all of the you know tech geek stuff you like um it, it is really a robust technology and works pretty well um and my hats off to all the people who are involved in, in really making this happen because i think it's going to change a lot of patterns of care um that's great the other is completely other side of the spectrum our lab does a lot of work with um diagnosing and helping treat cml patients in the developing world uh, that's along with the Max Foundation, who I think you've actually interviewed Pat Garcia Gonzalez before in the past, who runs the Max Foundation. Yeah. The basic gist of it is that if we can diagnose people with CML in the developing world, a number of pharmaceutical companies will give those people a free drug for life, um, which I think they, I think Pat squeezed that agreement out of Novartis when they figured it was a completely idle gesture because she would never be able to diagnose anyone in the developing world. Uh, they take care of 60 to 80,000 patients now. <laughs> wow. Global staff of less than 70, which is kind of amazing. Um, but one of, the, one of the things is for those people who might be CML uh, files out there, um, you know, there's this whole new thing of actually being able to discontinue uh, therapy in patients who have been, who've had a great response for uh, a number of years. Uh, and so far, that's been a very, very tightly controlled clinical trials because, you know, we, it, it's it, it's you're taking someone off drug, you have to monitor them closely. It's, you know, not you just don't want to do this willy nilly because you want people to relapse. Right. Um, so what we have in abstract is the first study so far of the experience of trying to do this in the developing world is by using strict criteria. Obviously, not all places in the developing world have access to labs that you need and the like. We, picked, we cherry pick patients who had been on drug for at least 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. But it shows that under the right conditions, um, you get essentially the same results that if you would try to this in Seattle. Uh, and then I think, it's, I think it's huge because, you know, the, the Max Foundation works and gives drugs, you know, to people who need them. But there's a lot of places in the developing world whose, whose health ministries you know, provide these drugs, but it's an enormously expensive thing, right? Yeah. So, so if you could actually target patients who didn't need therapy, you'd be free, freeing up enormous numbers of resources for people who need, you know, other stuff. Yeah, uh, so I think it's, so I think it's very, very, uh, very promising. So that's my uh, pitch. I'm sorry to be. Uh, <laughs> no, this is, this is, this is really important. And I think it's really looking, looking at low middle income countries and low resource countries, very important and, and finding ways to actually help patients in these regions uh, is, is a noble cause. So uh, appreciate you. you sharing yeah, this. Yeah. Jerry, this was really very helpful. And uh, um, you, you got us uh, very intrigued and very interested in all of the data that is being presented about yeah. AML at the 2023 American Society of Hematology. I look forward to having you in the future again. Um, Love to. With, uh, with uh, even as these uh, preliminary studies mature and we have uh, more exciting yeah. results. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you thank for you. everything you're doing and congratulations on all the success you have. Th thank you. And for, thank you very much for the invitation um, and leading the way. And for all the people going to San Diego, I highly recommend carne asada burritos. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And there's no conflict of interest with that restaurant. No conflict of interest. Okay, uh, if you don't ahead. like it, I'll give you my money back. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Good. Jerry <laughs> Radich, thank you for coming on the Heman Pulse. Thank you. Thanks. All right.